Good evening, everyone. I'm Mark. You guys doing good? Great. Cool. I'm doing, I'm doing well as well. So, uh, hey, uh, just a quick um, just addendum to John's announcement on Blue Like Jazz. Uh, uh, you can't just show up and, and get a ticket. You need to uh, buy it in advance. And you can see the... Uh, the email, or not the email, the web address is inside your fridge fold, and uh, so you can go ahead and do that. So, um, hey, we are continuing in uh, Galatians, and if you remember, uh, Pastor Eric started out the series talking about what Galatians is, and uh, we found out that it was a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul, and he was writing it to a church that he had planted in Galatia, and uh, there had been some issues happening in that church, and uh, that had been needed to be corrected. And as you, if you remember last week, we found out what the issue was, that there's this real conflict between kind of Gentiles being forced to uphold uh, the law uh, and and trying to supplement the gospel with the law. And Paul didn't want any part of that. So what we're going to do actually is back up a little bit just to pick up in the story, and then we will move forward. So if you open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be starting in verse 11. And Paul writes this, but when Peter... The, uh, the disciple Peter, who was with Jesus um, when he walked the earth, Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. So what did Peter do wrong? Well, we're told in verse 12, when he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of Jesus came, or from J friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. Now, I know that a lot of times when we're reading the Bible, you know, it's like blah, 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 circumcision, blah, 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 you know, Peter and James, and, and it just, there's this huge disconnect. So uh, I want to make this kind of real for us. Do you guys know who Billy Graham is? Okay. All right. Good. Okay. So, the, think about it this way. Uh, think about if, uh, if Billy Graham came to E3, all of us, came, came in and said, hey, you know what, I, I want to check out what you guys are doing. I want to hang out with you guys, and, and you know, I want to go to Decent Pizza with you and, and uh, have some Decent Pizza, right, and, and all that. So we're like, cool. You know, how often do you get to have some decent pizza with Billy Graham, right? So we, uh, we go and, and we just have a ball, you know, and Billy's funny. I mean, he tells all these great jokes, you know, about behind the scenes stuff, you know, like salvation mishaps in his crusades and, uh, you know, all these kind of things, you know, the, the untold story. And we're hanging out and it's great. And he's all like, you know what? This is so awesome. You guys are so cool. We should do this again. We're like, yeah, cool, Billy. We'd love to do that. So we set it up, and we're all excited about hanging out with Billy. 
And then suddenly, you know, since we all, you know, we're following his tweets and everything, we see him tweet something like, man, those, those E3 people, man, I just, I don't want to, I don't even want to be near them or something like that. And we'd be like, chicka, what? You know, we were just like, Billy, we thought that we were, you know, we were, we were connected, that we were having a good time to, to find out that, that Billy did love us, but, but uh, he'd come under pressure from some people going like, you're really going to hang out with those faith, authenticity, and emerging culture people like E3. Like, that's not even a real church, you know? It's like a letter and a number, you know? And, and, so, and something like that. So he's all like, uh, you know, I'm not going to go. And, and this is really, this is, this is the situation that's going on, you know, that, that Paul, you know, uh, uh, planted this church, but Peter, like the dude that chopped off a guy's ear and like kind of walked on water with Jesus and sank and all that kind of stuff, denied Jesus three times. You know, actually, he's a pretty big mess up, huh? You think about it, you know, not a very good resume, but, but pretty exciting because this guy, Peter, who's, a, you know, the, the, the stone, the, the, the rock that that's, the church is building is, is going to come. And then you think you have this cool connection with them, and the next thing you know, he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Why? What happened? What, what was going on? Why did he do it? And Paul tells us he was afraid, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. And really, we... we here have the, the crust of, of the, the matter, and the truth is that the fear of criticism, especially in the church, is relational poison. That, that we are called to, to go and, and invite the downtrodden, the outcast, the people who the, everyone else rejects to experience God's love. And those of you who've been uh, followers across Christ for a while and, and in the church, you've seen this happen again and again, this kind of fear of criticism being relational poison. And as a pastor, this is one of the things that grieves my heart, my heart when I only have one heart, uh, when it happens again and again and again. What happens is, you know, somebody will come to faith in Christ and they're so excited about about the freedom and the love and the forgiveness that they have experienced. But who are all their friends? They're not like goody-two-shoe Christians, right? They're, they've, they've been in life. They've, they've been out there, you know, in the world and, 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 and just kind of being part of all that. So what does a new follower of Christ do? Well, something that it's important to you, you, you share it, right, with the people that you love. So they go and they, you know, they, they, they go to their friends and, and uh, maybe they make the mistake of, of like, checking, checking in on Facebook at Big Daddy's or something because and, and, uh, that's where their friends are at and they're, and they're hanging out. And then it, next week it's kind of it's subtle where it's like, hey, hey. Saw that you checked in at Big Daddy's. Yeah, that's where my friends were at. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of this subtle thing. It's just, it's not in your face, but that gets built up again and again. It's like, well, 
maybe as, as a Christian, I shouldn't be out there living my faith in the world. And, 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 and you start ref- coming back and you start losing your connection with the world. And then pretty soon, all you have are Christian friends. Now, you might be sitting there going like, well, wouldn't that be great? Isn't, isn't that awesome that all of my friends are, are, um, are followers of Christ? There's a problem with that. That's called heaven, not earth. There is something that we are meant to be doing while we are here on this place called earth. And that is inviting our friends to experience forgiveness and love and acceptance. And it is incumbent upon us not to judge one another when we are out loving people and being an ambassador of Christ, but to encourage one another to go where no one else will go and go for the purpose of being a light, being an ambassador of Christ in a dark place. So what were the results of Peter's actions? Verse 13, as a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, Paul's good buddy, was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul is, is, is pissed, right? That, that, that these people that he loved and he poured his life into, that, that Peter comes in and just, just dumps all of this relational poison in, into the church. And, and people are upset. They don't know what's going on. So what does Paul do? Well, verse 14, he tells us, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? That is a bomb diggity question if you ask me. It's like you and me, we are both Jewish by birth, that we were raised up memorizing and trying to follow the 613 laws. And both of us have found freedom in Christ and now are living like Gentiles. So what the heck are you doing coming in to the church in Galatia and saying, you know what, Gentiles, you need to pick up the law which I discarded. But that would never happen like in the 21st century, right? Religious people would never impose like their values and their laws on, on other people, would they? No, of course not. Why are we even talking about this? Because it happens. In fact, it's one of the most perplexing questions that I have is why, why do Christians feel compelled to enslave others with the law when, uh, when they have found freedom in Christ? Like, why do we do that? And I think it really comes down to this. 
that that we uh, we uh, want God's grace and and we want freedom in Christ, but we are also very uncomfortable with other people's grace, the grace that they've been given and and their freedom in Christ. In fact, I was I wrote a blog post a while ago about it, and then there was a discussion on Facebook about it. And and my good friend Hayes, who who comes here, he's one of the eleven o'clock people that that John obviously doesn't like. Uh, that that uh, we were talking about this law and grace, and I posed a question, something like, you know, which one would you rather have, or what do you prefer, or something, you know, piffy, or something stupid like that. And he, he wrote tongue-in-cheek, because I know Hayes. Tongue-in-cheek, he wrote, I want grace for myself and the law for everyone else. Right? I mean, He's just like, boom, there it is, deal with that. And, uh, like, I don't think he got any likes or anything. It was sad. Maybe I liked it or something, but, you know, just, you know. Uh, but, but this idea that why, why are we so ready to accept grace for ourselves and so slow to want it for everyone else? And I think it really comes down to our selfish nature because we, we want that forgiveness, but we want other people to pay for what they've done. And, I, and, we don't, and we don't want anyone doing anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. And this becomes a real issue when we start to elevate uh, the 613 laws and start using those as, as, as a weapon and as a supplement to the gospel. And then we're in really, really bad territory when we start adding 614, 615, based on our preconceived notions of how life should be. So we continue on, and he asks the question, which I think is completely valid. So, you know, how is one made right with God, right? That, that, that he's talking about and saying, look, you've, you've shortchanged the gospel. You're not following the truth of the gospel, and, and you're trying to tell people they have to follow the law in order to be right with God. And so how, do, how are you made right with God? I think it's a legit question that we should all want to know. Fortunately, Paul tells us, you and I are by Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is made right with God. Aha, our question, by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. Check this next part out. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Here Paul is saying, look, no one has ever been made right with God by trying to obey the law. And no one ever will be made right with God because they obey or try to obey the law. Gets better. Then he goes in and he starts to talk about the folly of actually trying to follow the law. And he, he poises this kind of the nest, this next thing, and I think it just a literary, like, just uh, uh, ingenious way. And, it, and it, it's nuanced, but it's, it's very cool. Verse 17, 
But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ led us into sin? Isn't that cool how he did that? Like, how do you answer that question? Hey, did Christ lead you into sin? Well, no. I mean, every Sunday school person knows you, you have to answer no to that. But the previous part, what if we completely abandoned the law and we spent all our energy on following Christ and we are guilty of not following the law? Does that mean now that Jesus led us into sin? And I think all of us sitting here have to say, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. And that's what, what Paul is trying to do is, is paint the folly of elevating or trying to supplement the gospel. But he doesn't leave it there. He continues on, and I think he makes one of the most bold statements in the New Testament that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. He says in verse 18, rather... I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already torn down. For when I try to keep the law, it condemns me. And here he's saying, you know what? There is a sin. It is a sin to supplement the gospel with the law. When we try to rebuild the system of the law and try and, and neglect God's grace, that we are in sin. And I think a lot of us, like, I mean, don't think about it that way. That, that this, this effort to be good enough and to uphold the law is actually a form of sin. And he says, look, for when I try to keep the law, it condemns me. Now, keep that phrase in your mind, and we're going to jump over to Romans in chapter 8 and verses 1 through 3, because I think he does a really good job of, of talking about being condemned by the law in, in uh, Galatians here, and I think he does an outstanding job about freedom of Christ and the law in Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Going back to Galatians. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Going back to Romans. But now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. Verse 2. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And then verse 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. What did God do that the law could not? Well, God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and walked a perfect life. And he atoned, he died on the cross in atonement of our shortcomings of our sin and paid it all. <laughs> and really what we come down to here, I think, is, the, is, is really a view of, of the law versus relationship. Really, law, the law, the motivation of the law versus 
of relational motivation. And I've, I was given a lot of thought about this, and I was thinking of one of the kind of the more uh, kind of nine laws that I, I could talk about in our, in our culture is the speed limit. And, and there's two really different ways to look at the speed limit. When I was 16 years old, yes, they had cars back then. When I was 16 years old, I, uh, I had a 1977 Chevy Love truck. Look it up. Google it. It's pretty sweet. Mini truck. All the rage. Everybody wanted it. Blue vinyl seats. No power steering or air conditioning. AM radio. Rocking it the old school. And, uh, and this is how I looked. This is how I looked at, at the speed limit, the law of the speed limit, that it was a, a system of oppression trying to stop me from having the fun that I wanted to have to get where I wanted to go, you know, to, you know, to, to just, you know, whatever. Why? You know, I just thought it was a system of oppression. And I can be honest with you, the only reason that I ever did obey the speed limit or even paid attention was out of fear of punishment. Now, the first time I didn't really have this fear and, and, and I got a ticket. And uh, back in the day, I don't know if they do this now, but if you got a ticket, you had to actually go to court. You couldn't just pay it. And you had to go to court with your parent. Do they still do that? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, that, that, California, I tell you what. So I don't know if they still do that. So, so first time I'm like, whatever, you know, stupid cop gave me a speed ticket and everything like that. You know, it's his fault, right? And uh, so I went to court with my dad and, and uh, my, my fear quotient raised, you know, about getting another one. But the way I looked at the spirit limit was, was this was a system of oppression stopping me from doing what I wanted to do. And the only reason that I would obey this law is out of fear of punishment from the government and more so my father. And I can tell you that the way that I look at the speed limit is vastly different than how I looked at it uh, when I was 16 years old. I'm 42 years old now. I have two, you know, children and have a little bit more life experience or a lot more life experience than when I was 16. And the, really the way that I look at the speed limit now is not as a system of oppression, but actually a, a valuable uh, recommendation of a safe speed so I do not bring other people harm. I really do. Like, in my mind, I, 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 it doesn't matter. Like, my, if I get a ticket, my dad's not going to be all over me. You know, I mean, that's like long. He's not going to have to go down to court with me or anything. There's not really that, that fear. You know, I don't want a speeding ticket, you know, because they're expensive and everything. But that's not why I obey the, the, the speed limit. In fact, uh, it wouldn't matter personally if there was a, uh, if you told me, I, you know, I drive down from Thomasville every evening on here to Sunday, you know, that 
that I would, I guarantee, you guaranteed me I wouldn't get a ticket, I still wouldn't speed because I look at that as, as a, a way to let me know that, hey, subject to this, this road and how this road is and things like that, that this is a safe speed, not only for yourself, but for others. And, and it's no longer a fear of the law and punishment, but but I see that law, I have a relational motivation for, for, look, for, for following it. And the truth is that, I've, that I, when I look at laws, that what I've come up with is the, the law stands in the absence of love. Laws stand in the absence of love. Think about this, in the, in the beginning... Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, and, and God was walking with them. How many laws were there? One, really. You know, don't eat of this, you know, tree or whatever. Don't eat of this fruit. Very few laws. When there was a relational separation and, and love diminished, the need for additional laws came into play. In fact, in, in Jewish culture, it got up to 613 laws. I have no idea how many laws that we have on the books in America alone now. But, but the truth is that when we look at, at laws, that, that the law stands where, where love um, doesn't exist. And let me give you this example. This is my favorite example. Go into any restaurant, and if you go into the restroom, what do you see? You see a sign that says, it is the law that you, chef, who is going to be preparing Mark's salad, must wash your hands after you've gone potty. Really? We need a law for that? Yes, we do, because people don't love me, and they don't love you. Really? Because if that chef truly loved me, he wouldn't need a law to tell him to wash his hands. He would wash his hands. In fact, I've, I've jokingly thought of putting like uh, in our bathrooms, love your neighbor, wash your hands, you know, signs, you know, ideas like that. It's just, um, but, but really, I mean, that, that the, law, the law stands, the laws exist in the absence of love. And I think that this really gets to the heart of it that, that when we look at the 613 laws of Moses that were given, when Jesus was asked what the most important one was, he responded, how? Holistically love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and equally as important, love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws come under that banner. That's what Jesus said. This idea, and think about this. If you, in your life, 
If you change your orientation from a fear of the law, the fear of punishment, and you reoriented your life to a relational motivation and said, in everything I do, I want to bring glory to God. And in everything I do, I want it to be an expression of love of others. How many laws, if, if, we all, if everybody in society did, how many laws would need to be on the books? None? About, give or take, none? The law stands because of the absence of love. And we, followers of Christ, are freed from the law because we have the freedom to follow Christ. And those of us who are followers of Christ do not need to be subject to the law because we are following so closely to Christ that we would never even come close to breaking any of these laws. And we're covered by God's grace even if we do. Paul concludes this section by saying this, so I died to the law. It's dead to me, right? I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. Now, I want you to catch this. He died to the law. He stopped trying to meet all of its requirements, and now he lives for God. Essentially, what he's trying to say here is, I was spending all my time and my energy making sure that I was, was you know, eating the right food, and I was trying to, you know, celebrate the right uh, holidays and, and tithing when I was meant to and doing all of these different things that it was taking all of my energy. And you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to reorientate my, my focus. And instead of spending all my time and energy trying to uphold the law, I'm going to spend all my time and energy in bringing glory to God and living for His glory. And continues on, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And then, this is probably one of the most important verses of the summer, and especially in all of Galatians, and I want you to catch this. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If we could uphold the law, there was no need for Christ to die. There's no reason for God to come and walk this earth and be crucified. That when we trump the law of God over the love of God, we are rendering Christ's sacrifice, God's sacrifice for us as meaningless. And I don't care who you are, that is not a good place to be. 
We're going to do something a little bit different uh, this evening. Uh, I've asked uh, John to uh, come back up and see that and impress us with his vertical jump. Uh, we thought it might be kind of fun. Uh, I asked him to kind of like listen with a community ear and... Uh, and if I said anything that, that he felt uh, needed further explanation or, or just expansion uh, to, to try to ask those questions. And, and this is kind of a glimpse of kind of what growth groups are like uh, as well. So, John? Yeah, I've been back there trying to gauge people's responses. And I think we all have the same question on our mind. I want to understand the nuances of your spiritual journey that takes you from a sweet Chevy truck to, it's sweet, it's a mini, and you eat nothing but apparently salads. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I think, I think in terms of like, practically speaking, I'm interested in hearing a pastor's perspective on how you see, this is sort of negative, but how you see a lot of this sort of, um, even people who've experienced grace, uh, reverting to law? Like, how, how do you see that, practically speaking, kind of manifest itself? Um, like, how does it happen, or what does it look like? What, what does it look like? Yeah, I think it, I think that just about everyone I know who came to faith as, a, as an adult, uh, uh, they have this under like they carry with them this act of forgiveness and this freedom and of grace and uh, um, what I, what I see is a lot of times that that they're so excited in, in in that but then there's just like little comments from people and I think it just starts to chip away from our freedom and uh, it it starts to move people to a more legalistic uh, kind of viewpoint where you start, you know, I don't think that this whole system of the law gets uh, rebuilt in a day. I think it's one of those things, it's like a brick goes there and nobody moves it and another one. And, and pretty soon, you know, you're, you, you're in this system of the law and you don't even know how you get there so much so that, you know, you hear stories of people, like somebody will walk into a church and they're not dressed like how the culture, and like, oh, you wore that or you, you know, or something like, like that, which um, I think that we have to be on our guard against those kind of things and not let the, the lure of the law kind of creep into the church. I think, well, that's, that's great. I think my next question is, yeah, what's the positive? If if more love as love abounds, like law fades. Right. How how do we practically love increase the love in our life? Well, I I think it really comes down to uh, really grabbing hold of 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 spend like what Paul was talking is like I'm not going to spend my energy on trying to uphold these 613 laws. I'm going to spend all my energy on following Christ and and living for God as as, as much as I can and uh you know I think that like relationally for us um 
that kind of understanding there's a difference between uh, uh, salvation and maturity, and we talked a little bit about this last week. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we get we we get the gospel and just discipleship kind of uh, interwoven. And they're really two separate issues that, that we're adopted into God's family as we are. And, as, and when we experience, you know, carrying God's name as, as Christians, that, that just being part of that family, that our attitudes and our minds and our, our actions start to change. And, and I think probably uh, one place that I think um, you know, kind of the 20th and 21st century uh, church has, has, has got it wrong uh, is that we've become a kind of a microwave culture where, you know, somebody accepts the gospel and then we want to shove them in a microwave and uh, have them pop out a shiny, neat, you know, fully roasted Christian, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's how I lost my hair, you know. And... Um, and I really think that when we, you know, we look uh, at the New Testament, that that number one, that that our responsibility is to create an environment for growth, and that that growth is more like a crock pot uh, than than a microwave. Real real growth. So yeah, I think culturally making relational space. For people, in uh, uh, earning the relational right to speak into their life, because if you don't have a relational investment in someone, then you really don't have the relational right to try to form them into your image. You know. Thank you.